So here's what we're going to do. We're going to get into the book of Revelation. Uh, if you've been with us over the past few months, you know that we've been going through the book of Revelation. If you're new here, we're glad you're here. Uh, we've been going through the book of Revelation, and uh, we just finished basically the first three chapters of the book. We're going to be hitting into chapter four uh, and tonight, which uh, is what I mentioned last week. We're going to heaven tonight. Not good? I'm glad that you guys are excited. That's awesome. That should be the response. Excitement. Going to heaven. We're going to go to heaven tonight. We're going to see what it's like. In fact, it's one of the greatest chapters, I think, of the entire Bible. Um, And so we have an opportunity to be getting involved in reading this chapter, which, to be really frank with you, I think is almost like the Holy of Holies of all sacred literature, of all the Bible. Not to say that any other passages in the Old Testament are that great, uh, or other chapters are a little bit sub- par to this. It's not all the Bible's great. It's all God's inspired word. Uh, However, this chapter is exceptional. It's great. It's actually just full of life and vibrant colors. Really the throne of God, the the, what heaven, where God resides, where God's glory emanates and comes forth. And I'm really excited about tonight. Uh, We're going to be looking at this. So what I'm going to do, we're going to jump in. I'm going to pray. But you're going to find as we sort of head into this evening tonight, look at chapter 4, uh, we're going to basically begin to pick up the pace. If you've been with us since the beginning, uh, we've been kind of moving a little bit slower. Uh, when we looked at the seven letters of seven churches, we could have just kind of tackled those real quickly, but we didn't. We kind of went through each uh, letter to each church because we really felt it was important for us to try to understand what God had to say to these churches, realizing that in a lot of ways these churches represent different Christians throughout all ages. In a lot of ways, there's a lot of good pertinent information that would apply to us as well. But from this point forward, we're going to be moving a little bit faster. The pace will be picked up quite a bit uh, in terms of uh, uh, speed. Uh, so for the most part, we're going to be looking at almost a chapter a week. And, uh, and, and I think, again, our goal of what we're trying to accomplish in going through the book of Revelation is really at the end of the day, we want to see Jesus. We're going to really keep sort of this idea set as an overlay that we started from the very beginning, which is Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. John starts off and says, this book is the unveiling or the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we really want to make sure that everything that we see in this book has to do with Jesus Christ. Now I understand, I realize, that oftentimes when people talk about or hear the book of Revelation, they get really excited. People are always just intrigued about, you know, futuristic events, especially events that have to do with some dude that's going to come along and make everybody have a tattoo that says 666. And they wonder when the Antichrist is going to happen or when the rapture of the church is going to take place and is everybody going to die? And uh, is there really a beast that's going to rise up out of the sea? And are there really locusts that are come, come down they're going to look like you know, flying saucers and Apache helicopters? Again, a lot has just become radically sensationalized, to be really frank with you. And I think it's really unfortunate, to be really up, up front. I think it's unfortunate because what happens is it detracts. It takes away from the main purpose by which John, for which John wrote the book, which is Jesus, all right? And, and, and I want to try to keep bringing it back to that, and if I err, I err on the side of trying to show you Jesus, all right? That's, that's what we're going to keep bringing it back to, and so tonight we start by going to the throne room where God resides. We're going to begin to see some amazing things, and I think John places this chapter here at the beginning of the book as basically a means of saying that no matter what else happens in the rest of this book, whatever else happens in sort of the unfolding of futuristic events or the unfolding of history, period, what needs to be understood, what needs to be comprehended, what needs to be seen 
is at the center of all things, God's there. God is on a throne. He's not shaken. He's not moved. He's not troubled. He's not tripping out. He's not frustrated. God is on the throne, and he's ruling and reigning. That's really good news for us, because we live in a world that everybody's just freaking out. They don't know what's going to happen. That's why people, you know, come out with movies about 2012, end of the world's going to happen. We're all going to die. You know, more terrorist attacks are going to happen. And people love, love to just think everything's going to finish up. And what ends up happening at the end of the day is we become a bunch of fear mongers. We become afraid. We're worried about losing our lives. But God is not worried about it. God is on the throne. So what we're going to see tonight that John really wants for us to understand is that that's exactly where God is. He's on the throne. He's ruling and reigning. And that's going to be very helpful for us as we begin to see a lot of events unfold throughout the book of Revelation that have to do with world rulers, other leaders, other type of economic collapses, diseases, cataclysmic events, um, natural calamity. And again, in the midst of all these things, it's very easy for us to forget what's really happening here. John wants to center us on the one main truth that he's on the throne. He's in control. That's sobering and that's helpful. So that's where we're heading tonight, heaven. All right, I'm going to pray and we're going to get to work. Father, we ask you right now that you would help us to just understand the reality that you're on the throne. You rule, you reign. There's no stress going on up there. There's not this control room full of freaked out angels trying to figure out what's going to happen next. God, you are on the throne. There's peace. John even describes that there's like a sea of glass in front of you that's just perfectly calm and still. It's not troubled. It's not turbulent. There's not wind. There's not any types of calamities. There's just rest. There's peace. God, in your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So I ask you tonight, God, that you would help us just to catch a glimpse of this, to see this, to be transformed by this. So we commit this evening in your hands. We pray that you be glorified in all that we do. Help us above and beyond all of the things just to see Jesus. We ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Revelation chapter 4, why don't you guys open up there. If you don't have a Bible, you can go ahead and grab one there in the back. Revelation chapter 4. I want to begin by basically saying this. That as we look at this, I think one of the things that we'll begin to understand is that you'll have to have uh, an imagination. If you're the type of person that likes to break things down in a nice um, linear type of events and try to think in terms of things uh, systematically, I like systematic theology. I love breaking things down and putting topics and headlines over them. And, you know, I, I think that way. I tend to just sort of try to break things down that way. Uh, But what I want to try to say is this, is that when you approach chapter 4, and really in a lot of ways the rest of the book of Revelation, you got to think differently. you got to approach the book of Revelation in a different perspective. Here's why. John writes in a different genre of literature. We've been trying to say this from the beginning. John writes in a particular genre of literature that's known as apocalyptic, which means that there uses a lot of color, a lot of imagery. Um, I've said this before. A kid has a better ability at understanding the book of Revelation than an adult. Because kids have this greater adaptation or greater ability to understand um, huge pictures. If you want to look at it this way, kind of a genre, uh, the book of Revelation is kind of like a comic book. It's, it's kind of written in a colorful comic book type of a format, meaning it's not like, it's not like Shakespeare. 
It's written like a comic book. There, there's pictures all over the place. It's meant to sort of intrigue. It's meant to sort of uh, stimulate and create kind of a sense of like, um, of, of appreciation, of awe, of all that's happening, of all that's transpiring. And so if you read it seriously, like kind of like Shakespeare, you're, you're going to miss some of the ty- types of uh, elements that are trying to take place and happen there. So especially tonight, as we come to this particular chapter, and it has to do with all sorts of sights and sounds and colors, you've got to be able to understand and look at things through the use of a sanctified imagination. All right? So if you have a hard time with that, ask God right now, under your breath, God, just give me the ability to be able to kind of see things this way, because I think it will help us as we understand what John's about to see. The thing I want to basically say about this is I mentioned before that this has to do with God's throne. The Greek word that you're going to see appear here is called, uh, it's the Greek word thronos. Uh, It actually appears about 63 times in the entire New Testament. Thronos, it's a Greek word. About 63 times it appears in the entire New Testament. 30 of those times uh, it appears just in the book of Revelation. So you get this picture already off the bat that over half of the times in which this word thronos used or throne is used in the entire New Testament it takes place in the book of Revelation. Check this, almost 16 times this word thronos appears just in chapter 4. That's amazing. So literally what we're seeing here in chapter 4 is this book pulls back a veil and it brings us into this holy of holy type place where God resides. This is the throne room of God. What you're going to see tonight could, should blow your mind. It should cause you to just be in awe because that's what's happening. If you understand, if you have eyes to see, if you have ears to hear, you will be in awe and you will join the rest of the people that we're going to be reading about here tonight uh, on their faces worshiping God for his greatness. Or at least you'll catch a glimpse of it and it will carry with you. That's what I hope will happen. That's what I hope will take place. Uh, others of you might hear it just yawn because your eyes haven't been opened. It's like eating some food in which you have a tongue that doesn't have any taste buds. You eat food, you don't really know how good it is because you don't have the ability to taste it. Some of us, that's why some of us, we yawn at the thought of heaven. It doesn't make sense to us. It's either because we've had bad theology and we've had our ideas sort of conformed when we think about heaven as the way the media sort of defined it with where there's like a bunch of these chubby little angels hanging out in clouds playing harps singing really bad music and we get this idea that heaven sounds really boring and if that's the idea it's because either we've been given bad theology about heaven or like I said we just haven't had our eyes open to see it you're not a Christian you don't understand the beauties of it so with that being said we're going to begin to take a look at some really powerful things I want to jump in before we take a look at this and try to understand what a throne means so I'm going to give you guys a few examples throughout the Bible of how throne is used in a variety of ways. Uh, in the book of Exodus, chapter 11, verse 5, it describes this idea of a seat of an earthly king. So it's an actual, physical, literal type of a place where an earthly king hangs out, and on that throne he issues decrees, judgments, uh, has power, has authority. Uh, the second way is it, it appears is, is symbolically. Uh, not only is it an actual spot, but it's also symbolic. You talk about thrones in terms of a symbolic type of a way. Third way is that it's the seat of God. And it's from this particular seat that God is the king. He's the judge over all the earth, all the nations. Uh, you see some glimpses of this in the book of Psalms. It talks about, you know, uh, heaven is God's throne. Earth is where God kicks off his sandals and just rests his feet. It says it's his footstool. So heaven is God's throne. Earth just happens to be the spot where God rests his feet. All right, again, it's not literal. It's sort of an image type of an idea, the ways, of, ways in which the Jews are trying to understand 
how great is our God. That God is so great that his throne uh, are all these stars throughout all the universe. And um, so you see that. Uh, the fourth is, uh, it's a symbol of Satan's power. Revelation chapter 2, 13 talks about this. That uh, this church kind of built itself up on a place where Satan's throne is. And then finally, fifthly there, it talks about it's a seat uh, for the Roman emperor or the Antichrist. Uh, again, so sort of a literal type of a throne that's established or set up uh, on this earth. And it's, a, uh, it's, it's spoken of. And what you're going to begin to see sort of unfold throughout the remainder of the book of Revelation is sort of this ongoing struggle or battle. Uh, John writes in such a way where it appears to be a struggle. But in reality, it's really not a struggle. But the struggle is on behalf of what we would typically call Antichrist. In fact, I don't know if you knew this or not, but the word Antichrist doesn't even appear in the book of Revelation. Uh, it doesn't even appear in the book of Revelation. The theme or the idea comes from the book of, uh, the, some of the epistles of John where he talks about this. But we typically think of whoever this person is, this ruler, this leader, world ruler type of an idea, as a person that is opposed to Christ. And he, in a lot of ways, sort of sim- symbolizes all of humanity who has the power, has authority to try to usurp God's authority and overthrow God's throne. But again, you're going to see in the very end that God is not easily overthrown. There really is not a struggle. God's not stressed. He's not worried. He's not kind of trying to figure out ways in which he can plot to take care of Satan. He's not. God's at rest on his throne, and he's not even troubled or worried by other opposing or other rival types of thrones. And that's what you're going to begin to see. This is one of the reasons why I think John uh, describes this or places this right here. Obviously, aside from the fact that the Holy Spirit inspires it to be so, But again, I think the reason is because God wants us to see, first and foremost, that God's in charge. God's in control. He has his finger in the pulse of everything that we just simply call history. This unfolding story, which happens to be this drama of redemption, in which God is at the very center of it all, working, in control, weaving together this phenomenal story so one day we're going to get to the place where we're going to see Jesus face to face and we're going to begin to understand things that we've never understood before. God will just say, I was in control the whole time. We'll worship him. We'll do what the people do here in the book of Revelation. We'll cast down our crowns before God, realizing that whatever types of abilities or strengths or authority that we've been given on this planet was just completely insignificant to the greatness of God's We'd be happy to cast our crowns before God, which represent all of that, and just say, Lord, we worship and love you alone. So with that, we're going to jump in. What we're going to do is we're going to take a look at sort of the relationship uh, of several different types of relationships to the throne. I'll give you an example. Uh, We're going to take a look at the example in terms of uh, what is upon the throne. So you'll see kind of the relationship to the throne or what's upon the throne. Uh, The second thing we'll talk, talk about is what's around the throne. Because it breaks it down in the text, you'll see in a second here, that talks about that which is around the throne. Uh, Thirdly, we'll take a look at that which is um, basically from the throne. And then finally, we'll finish up with what is before the throne. So we see what's before the throne, what comes out of the throne, what's around the throne, and what's on the throne. So again, everything centers around the throne. God's in control. He's on the throne. So with that, let's jump in, take a look at this. Uh, What's upon the throne? First one. Chapter 4 says this. After this I looked, and behold a door, standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard speaking to me was like that of a trumpet, saying, come up, 
and I will show you what must take place after this. So John uh, was basically, you know, it says that, uh, later on in verse 2, he says, I was in the spirit and I beheld. So, and again, a lot of times people sort of read into this and try to figure out, you know, what did John mean? He's in the spirit. You know, Pentecostals love to take this and say, John was, you know, in some sort of an ecstatic spiritual state. I don't know. I really have no idea. I think probably John was just worshiping. He was just singing songs to God. Maybe he was reading his Bible, praying. And remember, he was on Pat, the island of Patmos. He was a prisoner for preaching Christ. And here John was, perhaps worshiping God, singing songs to God, reading his Bible, journaling, whatever. We, know, we don't know exactly what he's doing, but whatever the case was, John was, describes it. I was in the Spirit, and all of a sudden, I looked up, and I saw a door open in heaven. So whatever what was going on here, this door opens up in heaven. He hears a voice that was sounded like a, of a trumpet, very loud, very bold, and it says, come on up. So John comes on up, goes up into heaven. Now again, uh, a lot of you know, Bible teachers and scholars kind of read into this. They're like, we think that this is when the rapture took place. To be really frank with you, I have no idea. It doesn't say that. And I, I think it's a little bit dangerous to just assume that, to be like, well, it must be, because John was brought up. We don't really know. We really don't know. And again, I don't want to kind of get lost in certain rabbit trails and trying to figure out things in terms of chronology and miss the big E on the eye chart. Jesus is on the throne. I don't want to miss that. Nor do I want to get into long extended arguments about, you know, you know, what happened right at this very moment. What was meant by this? This simply tells us John, hanging out, reading his Bible, in the spirit. All of a sudden, he hears a voice, sees a door open in heaven. He's taken up. He, he's there. He's in a vision. He sees this vision. He sees before him, playing before him, something absolutely phenomenal, which he records for us. And it transforms the way John thinks. And then he begins to tell us what he ends up seeing. That once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, one who was seated upon the throne. So that's what he notices. And it says in verse 3, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian around the throne. There was a rainbow. I'm going to stop right there. But the point that John, I think John describes, he notices, first of all, a throne. There's a throne in heaven. It's the very first thing that John notices. It's the center of everything. It's the center of everything that John notices. I think this is essential. Everything in existence, whether you know it or not, whether you are aware of it or not, whether you acknowledge it or not, centers around the fact that God is in control of all things. Now, a lot of times we live under this illusion that God's really not in control. We are, right? We think we're in control. We oftentimes have these ideas in our minds that we have the ability to sort of manipulate scenarios, to take care of circumstances, to pay somebody off. We're in control. And we do everything we can in our power, uh, depending upon how, you know, insecure or how determined we are, and also depending upon the abilities that we have, to make sure that we can always remain in power. But the reality is, it's just, it's just simply not true. It is an illusion that we live in and live under. We find ourselves oftentimes deceived. And when that whole deception is broken, and when that illusion comes crashing down, you know what we oftentimes do? We pray. We pray. We often, prayer oftentimes arises when that illusion of who's in control comes crashing down to the ground. When we begin to realize, I'm not in control. My world is falling apart. Everything's crashed around me. You get in a car accident. Someone says the word cancer. You've realized somebody around you just died. You thought they were so young. How'd that possibly happen? And we all of a sudden realize we really are not in control of what we thought we were in control of. 
Stock market just simply crashes, burns, we lose everything, our houses, bye-bye, and we don't really know what to do. We pray. Why? Because we oftentimes, at the core of who we are, realize that God's in control. But most of our lives, we just live under this illusion, he's not, we are. That's the struggle we live in. It's called sin. It's called our sinful nature. And unless God breaks that, then we just keep living under this illusion, this deception, until someday we wake up and we realize it's just not simply true, and either we A, give our lives to Christ and submit ourselves to him humbly, we surrender to him our sin, our offenses to God, thinking that actually we are in control, and we confess that to God, or we will one day die, we will face God face to face, and then we will begin to realize that everything that the preacher said, everything that the guy on the television said, regardless of how bad of a preacher he was on television, he had some truth to say. And the reality is, is that we will come face to face with this understanding that God really is in control of all things. So John basically recognizes that the very center of all things is this throne. God is at the center of all things. He's on the throne, he's in control, and here's what John basically notices. He says, and he who sat on a throne had this appearance of jasper and carnelian. Now what you'll notice is that John does not describe what God looks like. He doesn't put any type of form or body to him. And the reason for this is simply because God does not have any form. doesn't have any body. That's why Jesus says God is spirit. If you worship God, you've got to worship God in spirit. God does not have any form. This is one of the other reasons why in the Old Testament, God says don't ever make a carved image of me. Don't ever try to draw what I look like. Don't somehow uh, conceive of ideas of what I look like. God says, I have no form. I have no shape. Um, There is no body that I possess. So don't try to represent me as such. And so what had happened oftentimes throughout the Old Testament is people would draw uh, images of God or they would carve images of God. And obviously it was, was false. And God's basically was, I think the reason for that is God's saying, that any attempt to try to draw who I am, to try to carve out who I am and say this is God, is basically uh, someone coming up to you and drawing a picture of you and making your head look like Charlie Brown and saying, this is you. And you're like, that's not me. They're like, yeah, you look like Charlie Brown. You would be offended, right? And God would say, that's not me. And that's, that's actually offensive to me because that's nothing what I look like. I'm glorious. And that looks hideous. That's not me. So God says, that's an offense to me. So the point that I want to make is this, is John's very careful to not give any type of image in terms of description of what he sees there on the throne of God. Instead, what he does is he describes certain elements about what God's like. And what you'll notice are the descriptions that John gives about God are really colors. They're colors. So when John describes God and he says this, he says, God has the appearance or who sat on the throne had the appearance. He didn't even say his name. But he who sat on the throne. John's careful. If you notice this, or if you knew this or not, Jews are very careful not to use the name of God. In fact, if you ever read a Jewish Bible, uh, you'll notice that the name of God is always spelled G, and then there's an underscore. Take out the word O, the vowel O, and they just put D. G underscore D. And the reason why they do that is because they do not want to pronounce the name of God because of it's so, it's so sacred. So John is... Very careful, because he's a good Jew. doesn't say, oh, this is what God looked like. He's like, he who sat on the throne had this appearance. He begins to describe to us what this appearance was like. He says it was like Jasper and Carnelian. Now, if you're like me, 
you have absolutely no idea what those are. Right? Right? I mean, most of us don't have Jasper or Carnelian hanging out in our pockets, just lint. All right? We don't really oftentimes think in terms of like nice, precious stones. Most of us just don't simply have them. So I want to uh, show you a couple pictures of what I found through Google, thanks to Google, of what Jasper looked like and Carnelian looked like. So Jasper is like this uh, uh, opaque uh, brown, and some Jasper can be like uh, deep, dark red, but it's more opaque, more, uh, you, you can't really see through it, and it's just as beautiful. You can see these ones right here, they are not, um, they aren't shined up in any way or polished in any way, but you can just see it in kind of its natural sense, kind of a beautiful type of a stone. Carnelian is sort of like this translucent type of a red color, really rich, deep red color. And John basically says that what God looked like uh, were these vibrant, uh, beautiful colors. Now John, again, he's not simply saying, he's not saying God was a rock. But he's saying that there was these colors about God. There's these colors about that which was sitting upon the throne. He who was sitting upon the throne had these uh, unbelievable colors that were like carnelian or were like jasper. That's what he's basically trying to say. I want to give you a couple other verses that are uh, kind of important, I think, that give us another uh, little glimpse or snapshot. Uh, re- uh, Exodus chapter 24, verse 9. What you'll find in the Old Testament is that there are these periodic occasions, not very often, uh, but periodic occasions in which God allows some people to see him, or God allows some people to have this glimpse or revelation of him. Um, Ezekiel is a guy that's allowed to have this. Isaiah, uh, he sees this. Uh, John obviously saw this. Paul talks about saying, I knew this guy. I think most scholars think that Paul is talking about himself. I knew this guy, he speaks of himself in third person, who went up into heaven and saw things that are, I'm not, I can't even, I'm not even at liberty to describe what I saw because it's absolutely amazing. So beautiful, so glorious. I just don't even know where to begin to describe to you what I saw. So most people come up and they're like, hey, I went to heaven. To be really frank with you, I don't know how many of those are true. Probably most of them are just not. All right? Just leave it at that. And I think what, what we oftentimes see is that what, what he's going to describe now in the Old Testament, there are these occasions where these guys had seen this. And so in the book of Exodus, we see another one of those little snapshots or glimpses in this. I want to kind of compare these. I want you to see this because I think it's amazing. Here's what uh, it, descri- it describes in the book of Exodus. Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 elders of Israel, they climbed up the mountain. And there they saw God, the God of Israel. And under his feet, there, w- there was what seemed to be a surface, a brilliant blue lapis lazuli, uh, as clear as the sky itself. And though these nobles of Israel that gaze upon God, he did not destroy them. So I want you to pause and then think about this. There was this expectation that God is so great. These guys were blown away by the fact that somehow they were able to look at God and they didn't die. I want you to pause and think about this. Because sometimes we talk about God in very chummy type ways, like he's our best friend. And here's what I want you to understand. The way that the Jews would have understood this, the way the Jews would have seen God, is they would have described God in terms in which in some ways almost appeared fearful. Like, we don't want to look at God, because we'll die. God is so brilliant, God is so great, God is so mighty, God is so powerful, that to even look at God could mean, spell out our death. And so they're amazed, they're shocked, that Moses, Nadab, Abihu, 70 other guys, they're all hanging out there, they're looking at God, and nobody died. Not only that, it goes even further, it says this, in fact, they all had a meal with God. They sat down. God says, I'm not going to kill you. Instead, we're just going to have a great meal together. 
They sat down with God and had a meal. It's amazing to me that it was through this meal that God revealed himself. In the same way, in the same way, when Jesus rose again from the dead, even though he preached this whole amazing message to this group of people, uh, this, this, two guys walking on what was called the road to Emmaus, they didn't see it, they didn't get it, even though Jesus himself preached the message. And they did not recognize Jesus. They didn't understand that who Jesus was in his glory until he had a meal with them. So he broke bread with them. And it was in the breaking of bread that they began to realize that Jesus is the unveiled glory of the everlasting God. But I want you to notice this. What they notice about God is that they see that under his feet was this uh, surface that was like brilliant blue lapis lazuli. Again, if you're like me, you're like, what's that? I had no idea. I was reading this. I'm like, does anybody know what lapis lazuli is? My daughter, of all things, she's just like, Daddy, I know. I'm like, you do? <laughs> You're kidding. She's like, yeah, I studied like it in my geology book. I'm like, well, tell me what it is. So we actually looked on Google together. Again, I want to show you what lapis lazuli looks like. Next, there we go. It's that blue color. It's amazing. Again, that's unpolished. And so whatever it was, this type of color that Moses saw, he describes this as under God's feet was this unbelievably brilliant blue color, just like lapis lazuli, just absolutely gorgeous color. Uh, to take a look at the next slide. We'll see amber. We'll come back to that. Uh, actually, we won't come back to this slide, but I just want you to remember that picture. Next slide. We'll take a look at, um, whoops, sorry. Here's, I'll talk about that in a second. I want to read you a passage out of a book of Ezekiel. It says this, Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 26. Um, Ezekiel, again, sees this image of God, and here's what he says. There it is. He said, there was something that looked like a throne made out of blue lapis lazuli. So imagine this. Ezekiel sees this image of God. And what he sees is God's on this throne. And what he notices about the throne is that the throne itself is made out of something that looks like this brilliant uh, color of blue, lapis lazuli. And he says, and on his throne, high above, was a figure whose appearance resembled that of a man. From what appeared to be waist up, he looked like gleaming amber, flickering like fire. And from his waist down, he looked like a burning flame, shining with splendor. Around him was a glowing halo, like a rainbow, shining in the clouds on a rainy day. This is what the glory of the Lord looked like to me. When I saw it, he's going to describe the reaction, which is exactly the same type of reaction that John does and the rest of the uh, people in heaven that see God. They fall on their faces and they worship God. That is the actual reaction or response of those that recognize the greatness and the power and the authority in the throne of God. They fall on their faces. They worship God. They recognize in a lot of ways, I'm just not worthy. All of a sudden, there's this overwhelming sense of who I am in the sight of God. And yet, this will be one of the most amazing realities of eternity. Is that even though we are in so many ways, unworthy. This is a story of redemptive history that will constantly, for all eternity, I think absolutely confound us and keep us falling back on our knees to worship, is that it's by grace that we're saved. No, we don't deserve it. We don't deserve, we will not deserve to see God in his infinite glory. But by grace, God demonstrates his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That will be the story. We'll get more into this picture of Jesus on the throne in chapter 5. But what I want you to understand is this, is that coming from the throne, John sees uh, these images 
of God or these pictures of who is on the throne. And he just simply describes it in this most colorful of terms. What I want you to see is this, is heaven is beautiful. It's glorious. It's full of this deep, saturated, uh, beautiful color. And color comes from God. Okay, I want you to take a look at this picture. Um, Next one. There we go. Yesterday morning, I was walking out, woke up about 7 o'clock, and I was walking out into my front, uh, in the area where our front entryway is. We don't really have a very big window that kind of opens up to the front of our house. It's kind of a small window. And as I walked by, my entire front entryway was like this brilliant pink, purple, bluish color. It's amazing. I I was, I looked up, and I'm, where's this coming from? And I looked out the window and I saw, I had this direct view of Madonna Mountain right outside my window, and I saw just over Madonna Mountain this unbelievable sky full of color. And I walked outside, I had my cell phone with me, and I thought, i got to take a picture of this. So I took a picture of this. This is just looking down the street, like right where the sun is going to rise. It was just before sunrise. Absolutely beautiful. One of the most amazing sunrises I'd seen. And it wasn't just this. It was the whole sky that was filled with this unbelievable colors of, of blues and purples and pinks and just really vibrant, saturated colors. Uh, later on in the afternoon, I went for a bike ride. And I was riding my bike. Uh, if you remember yesterday, it was a little bit cloudy. It was overcast. It was gray, right? It was gray. In fact, it rained a little bit here in San Luis. And uh, while I was on my bike ride, it kind of started coming down just a little bit, not very much. But that, it just hit me. It just kind of made me, re, re, it reminded me of this morning. In the morning, I thought, gosh, it's so weird that these clouds are just gray right now. It was so weird for me to think that these very clouds, who would have, I had this thought that kind of crossed my mind. Who would have ever thought that these dingy, gray, monochromatic clouds just a few hours earlier were filled with the most phenomenal of colors? Blew my mind. And I just thought, what was it that brought about the colors? And it was the positioning of the sun shining on the clouds in just the right way, right angle, which just filled the clouds, filled what normally we would have never even understood or never even thought about could actually become color. It's full of it. And this is what I want you to understand about God. God is the creator of color. God created it. This is one of the reasons why we as human beings, we like color. Oh, look out. All of you guys have different types of shirts and have different colors and sometimes it, it kind of expresses who you are. Some people wear more brighter colors because they're bubbly and they're happy and chipper and all that. And, and some of you, you know, it, we, we all like colors. There's something about us as human beings that we just like color. Some of you in your houses, you paint all the time. You know, you paint your entryway, you paint your bedrooms different bright colors because you like color. We like things with color on it. And the reason for that is because we simply put our image bearers of God. We're made in the image of God. But I want you to understand something is this, that the source, you want like the inkwell, I mean the, the absolute source, the head, the fountainhead of all color originates from God's throne. It's where it all comes from. The desires that we have, the passions that we have, the artistic longings that we have, to see color splash in our lives comes from God. God created all color. God is colorful. That's what John's describing. That's what all these Old Testament passages describe to us, that God himself is full of color, and God's throne room is full of vibrant, brilliant, deep, saturated colors that absolutely astound those who watch it and look at it. That's what I want you to see. 
I mean, the reality is, this time of year, uh, you know, you get a little bit of rain and everything turns green. It's awesome for like four more weeks, right? And then it'll go brown again. Or maybe a little bit longer than that. But you get the idea. We love it like this. It's because all this color just comes out. It's amazing. You walk around, you're like, everything's green. Madonna's green. Bishop's green. Everything's green. I love it. Go for a drive, like on the 46. Like if you go up all the way to Paso, um, you just turn, and then you go all the way to the beach. Just drive 46. It's amazing because everything out there is green. Drive through all these vineyards out there. It's absolutely beautiful. You see all the green. You're off in the distance, you, you know, at certain spots, you can actually see the ocean. You can see... Uh, Morro Bay, the big rock out there. It's absolutely beautiful. But what I want you to understand is this. If you think that's beautiful, know this. All of that's desaturated. All of that's fallen. It's broken. It's not what it should be. And if we look at this world around us today, we're like, this is beautiful. Just know it's going to go back to being all dingy and brown again. And it's a constant reminder to us that this world in which we live in loses its color. Things break down because this world is broken. But one day, like Jesus said, heaven will invade earth. God won't bring us up to heaven. God will bring heaven down to this earth. And we, at some point in the future, after the resurrection, we will be living on a renewed earth where God will come and make his dwelling place with man and we will rule and reign with him on a renewed earth full of God's original intended creation will be amazing. I mean, I, I envision a world that will be absolutely gorgeous and beautiful as God had originally intended for it to be pre-fall. But now we see things broken. Now we see things, we see little glimpses, little snapshots of it. That's why we have seasons. The seasons never last forever. <laughs> we call them seasons, just a season, right? But what I want you to see again is all color originates from God. The second thing I want you to notice is what's around the throne. Revelation chapter 4 verse 3 says this. He who sat there on the throne at the appearance of Jasper, Carnelian, we look at that, said around the throne there was a rainbow uh, that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were 24 elders, or 24 thrones, and seated upon those thrones were 24 elders. They were clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And then he wants us to understand that around the throne there was this rainbow. Now rainbows, symbolically, in the Old Testament, uh, depicted God's faithfulness. This is one of the things that God pointed out uh, in the book of Genesis after Noah's flood. God put a rainbow in the sky and says, every time you look at this, always be reminded of the fact that I will keep my covenant and will never break it. Ever. Ever. So there's going to be this everlasting reminder that's around the throne of God. It's just sort of a regular staple in heaven that around the throne of God will be this rainbow that will constantly remind us of God's covenant faithfulness. He doesn't ever go back on his word. doesn't change his mind. He always stays the same. So what I want to, you to see, though, this rainbow is a difference, unique rainbow, because John describes it's like an emerald, meaning it has this uh, green hue to it. You see a picture of an emerald up there. But he also notices that there are these 24 thrones, and also around, or on these thrones are these 24 elders. And, uh, you know, a lot of scholars have debated, you know, who are these elders? And a lot of people try to fight and describe, try to, try to understand who these guys are. And again, like I said, these are little rabbit trails that we can get off on. I mean, I'm all for trying to unpackage the Bible and try to understand a proper interpretation of it. But what I am trying to say is this, is that there's a lot of scholars that disagree as to who these 24 elders are. I frankly just don't think it's all that essential to spend a lot of time trying to argue it. Uh, you know, I will give you my opinion as to what I think it is. Uh, but again, like I said, you might come up with an entirely different opinion. 
Uh, but one of the things is John doesn't tell us exactly who these people are. So if you, you know, hear what I have to say and you're like, I just disagree with that, that's fine. Still love you. Let's just keep our eyes on the one who's on the throne, all right? Let's just make sure that we don't miss Jesus as the center of it all. I think, because it's the number 24, uh, 24 is, uh, I think, probably representative of the 12 tribes of Israel, also of the 12 apostles. That's my thought. That's my guess. So if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. That's all right. We won't argue. We'll still love each other. We'll keep worshiping Jesus, all right? So whatever it is that these 24 thrones have these 24 elders around it, that's what's around the throne. Take a look at verse 6 through 8. It goes on, it says this, around the throne, on each side of the throne are these four living creatures, full of eyes, in front and behind. The first living creature was like that of an, a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle, in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them had six wings. They were full of eyes all around their head, or all around and within. The idea of eyes uh, probably um, speaks of the ability to see all things, that somehow they have this uh, ability to see all things, all the time, um, nothing sort of evades them. And they have these six wings. Uh, again, we'll look at a passage just a second here in Ezekiel. I'm not going to read it, but it does talk about the, these six wings. Two wings, they fly. Two wings, they cover their eyes, because they don't even want to look at the holiness and the glory of God. And with two wings, they just sort of, I don't know what the other two wings they do. Um, but, but these guys have six wings. You can read it. Uh, and then it goes on to say that these guys sing a song. They sing a song. So what, not only do you see this unbelievable color in heaven, but there's a lot of music, a, a lot of absolutely beautiful sounds going on, aside from the beautiful sights that are going on in their heaven. So these angels are singing. Uh, and again, I'm saying angels, assuming that these are angels. It just simply tells you that these are, are heavenly creatures, or heavenly beings. Now, a lot of scholars believe that these are angels. I think it's probably a safe bet to say that they are. But whatever they are, they're these powerful beings, all right? Now, this is not too difficult for us to understand that on the throne is God, and around the throne are these 24 elders, but also these four living creatures. Uh, the concept of having a throne is not that foreign to us. Some of us grew up in houses where you had a dad who had a throne. It might be a leather throne, and it has a magic wand that turns things on. All right? And from his throne, he issues decrees. Get me my slippers. Somebody give me something to drink. Somebody give me a blanket. All right? He issues decrees. And from that throne, if, you know, you come home and you're sitting on dad's throne and dad comes walking in the door, everybody jumps off the throne because no one is able or qualified to render authority over dad's jurisdiction. Right? He has a throne. Also, uh, the idea of having a throne is that, you know, we have pets around our house. And, you know, most dads have, you know, they, they have a throne. They can also have maybe like a nice dog. And they love their dog. Uh, some have cats, but they should have dogs. And so they have a dog. It's a good animal. It, 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 it's, it's respectful. It, you know, it, it bows. I have a dog. I love this. Every morning I wake up and I let my dog in. First thing my dog does, I'm not kidding, it bows to me. It, it literally lays prostrate before me. Love it. I love it. I'm like, this is amazing. I am your master. And the thing's like this. Ah. And I'm like, this is awesome. I love you, dog. You know? Her name's Ginger. She's a good dog. She's a sheep. And, uh, but what I want you to see this, if I can say this without sounding kind of trite or trying to play with the text, I think these holy beings or these living creatures are some sort of pet, some sort of uh, uh, um, creature that God created, and their whole purpose, sole being, 
is to worship God, to render praise to God. And they sing holy, 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 which means uh, God is unique. God is wonderful. He's glorious. And I say it three times because if, in uh, Hebrew literature, in Jewish literature, they don't have uh, an exclamation point. In our language, we you know, say a word, we put an exclamation point. At the end, it emphasizes it. Uh, in their language, they didn't do that. They would basically say a word three times. And it was basically a way of saying, God is not just holy, but he is holy, holy, holy. He's great and full of power and full of authority. And these four living creatures are always rendering God praise. I want to give you another little glimpse to this. Um, Take a look at the next slide. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. Like I said, I encourage you to read the whole chapter because it gives a lot of great insight here. I'm just going to read this little section of part uh, that prefaces this. Sounds very similar to what we just read in Revelation. But I just want to read you this little section because Ezekiel adds this little detail that I don't think John does. Uh, Not because John is omitting certain details, but because I think John is just focusing on certain things. And here in this particular little detail, he says this. These living beings, they looked like bright coals of fire or brilliant torches and lightning seemed to flash back and forth among them. And these living beings, they darted to and fro like flashes of lightning. So literally, whatever these beings are, they're so powerful that they can literally just move at the speed of light. They flash. Ezekiel describes them. They're just like these little flashes of lightning. They're here one moment, they're there the next. So whatever these things are, we've never seen them before. This to me is amazing. I am, have to admit, I'm kind of one of these guys that's an animal planet type freak. I love, I love, have you ever seen planet Earth? Love planet Earth. I'm into it. I love, I've tried to get my kids into it, kind of into it, but they kind of get bored. They don't like the fact of seeing animals kill each other. And I'm just trying to get over it, you know. But the reality is this, is I love learning about these things, especially animals that we normally just don't even understand or see. But one of the things I think that's amazing to me when I watch these types of programs is even these guys, they're the quote-unquote experts. They're like, we don't even know all the animals that are on this planet yet. Think about that. We live in a technologically advanced age. We've got the abilities to see a lot of things. We We don't even know all the animals that exist or have existed. Do you understand what I'm saying? We, even though we're great in a lot of ways, we've made massive advances in a lot of ways, there's still worlds and worlds and worlds of volumes that we just don't even know. And John's basically like, there were these four living creatures that were so profound, so amazing, and their sole purpose was to just bow before God and worship God. So we see around the throne this emerald rainbow, these 24 elders, or these 24 thrones, and these four living beings. And then the third thing that we're going to basically look at is that which is uh, from the throne. Verse 5, the uh, first part of verse 5 says this, And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and pearls of thunder. So three things, flashes of lightning, these rumblings, these pearls of thunder, just these massive uh, sounds that were sort of coming out of the throne. Uh, this is what was happening. I want you also to take a look at, as we kind of jump on to the very last one, I want you to notice what's before the throne. Before we jump into that, I want, I want you to just think about this. That God, from his throne, around his throne, is all these unbelievable sounds, I mean, if you've ever been in a thunderstorm, it's loud. Not in California, all right, or at least on the Central Coast. We just don't have thunderstorms that are scary, all right? If you've ever been in a thunderstorm that's scary, you know what I'm talking about. You ever been in that? 
You know, where you just hear it, you're like, I think I may die. <laughs> you just, you're just like, I'm just this little, you know, human being made out of flesh. I, 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 th- that was loud. I might die just because of that sound. And, and I think John is basically saying that from God's throne is sort of this unbelievable display of colors, beauty, sounds, sights. It's unbelievable. And, and all that John can do is resort to the language of simile. He's like, it's like this. It's like that. Or these creatures are like and having the face of an ox. I mean, he's not saying it was an ox with wings. It was like something profoundly uh, powerful about this thing that had certain resemblances to things that he could understand, that he can kind of make tangible for you and I. But what I want you to understand is, is, is from the throne are, are these things that nobody's ever seen before. What I want you to see with regard to this is that God is the center of, of all beauty, all architecture, all color, all storyline. If you're somebody that's kind of artistic, you like music, I mean, you, you know, you like colors, you like telling stories, you like writing stories, you're into drama, I want you to understand the reason why you like that is because you are an image bearer of God. You were made in God's image. You have to understand that, that you were made in the image of God. If you're a Christian and you realize that, you understand you're able to harness all of these benefits and these beauties of being able to use the arts in a way to display, to display or to magnify the greatness of God. If you're not a Christian, you hear this type of stuff, you begin to wonder, you're like, wow, I, I didn't, I, this, this could be. Maybe there is a sense in which the, I have these characteristic traits because I was made in the image of God. That's what I want you to hear is that God is the source of all beauty. All greatness comes from God. It all originates, comes out of God. So if what we see in this world is fallen and broken, if the music that we hear in this world comes from fallen and broken human beings, what must heaven be like? I mean, what must the colors of heaven look like? What must the new earth, the new world in which God will restore and what his original intent would be like? What must the songs of those in heaven with redeemed voices sound like? What must ears that are actually capable of hearing sound like, right? My, my daughter downloaded this app on her, my wife's uh, iPhone. It's like this dog whistle. You ever done that, seen that? There's like certain sounds because I'm older. It's like it even tells you, like if you're over, you're like age 35, you can't hear anything. I think it's like, you know, 16, 17 kilohertz, whatever. And she's playing it. I'm like, she's like, can you hear that? I'm like, I can't hear that. My other daughter's in the other room. She's like, shut that thing off. I hate that noise, you know? And I can't hear it. I just can't hear it. So there are sounds that we can't even hear. But the re- can you imagine what it must be like to have a renewed eyes, renewed ears, renewed voice to sing, re- renewed colors in this world in which we live in. It all comes from this image of the throne. That's what John wants us to see. Finishes with his little section as to what's before the throne. First thing in verse 5 says this. Before the throne, there were these burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. I think this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. Uh, The reason why is because number seven oftentimes refers to that which is of completion. Uh, The spirit, the seven spirits, I think is a reference to the fact that the spirit describes them as like fire. And I think uh, fire is a great simile to describe the Holy Spirit. If you ever like gone to 
you know, gone camping, and like at the end of the night when everybody's done talking and just kind of staring at the fire. Have you ever just kind of stare at a fire and just kind of try to find like a little, you know, uh, flame that's kind of going, it's flickering, and just trying to watch it for a little bit? If you've noticed, there's no rhythm ever to a flame, ever. It, it's never the same. Just here a little bit, now it's over there a little bit. If you watch for a little bit, it just disappears, it's gone. It vanishes and it pops up again over here. Like, that's crazy. It's this picture, this image of fire that God says is like the Holy Spirit. He's like the Holy Spirit. It's, and this is one of the reasons why I think uh, in the book of Acts when it says uh, when the Holy Spirit came down upon uh, God's people, the church, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, there was on their heads these, these tongues of flame of fire. Because I think it was sort of a symbol saying you are now filled with God. The Holy Spirit is not out there in some temple that you go to. Now the Holy Spirit is in you. God has taken up residence in you. If you're a Christian, please understand that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Christianity is not about centering on a certain spot or a place. We are one of the few religions that says we don't have a place where we say this is sacred. You understand that? We don't consider Jerusalem sacred. This building, there's nothing sacred about it. It's just a place where you come hang out. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in you. And he describes this, these seven spirits of God. They're before the throne. And then he goes on and says uh, that before the throne, oops, hold on a second. Go back one more time. I'll read it. <laughs> Verse five, back there. Okay, it says, uh, and before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. So John describes, he sees this massive sea of glass before God. Uh, and oftentimes ancient uh, you know, leaders, they would have this massive area where people kind of go hang out. It's kind of a seat. Before God was a sea of glass that was like crystal. Uh, the last thing we'll take a look at, verse 9 through 11. It describes this. It says, And whatever the living creatures, they give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever. Then the 24 elders. So here's, I want you to get this picture in your mind. That the last thing that we see that ends up before the throne of God. Not only the Holy Spirit is before the throne of God. Not only is there this sea that's like glass or crystal glass before God. Uh, but also... Before God are sort of this response, or is this response. These 24 elders were told, whenever they heard these angels, these angelic beings singing this song, it then says that these uh, 24 elders, they fall down before him who is seated on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever. And then they cast down their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created." So what I think John is basically describing here, what he sees is that also before the throne of God are worshipers. Not just any worshipers, but these are worshipers that recognize who is ultimately worthy. Okay, I want to try to make a distinction. Every one of us in this room is a worshiper. The word worship literally means something that's worthy or worth uh, this activity or this action. So we are all worshipers in this room. We all worship. The problem is, is that some of us worship things that are not worthy. All right? If you uh, are a pervert, you worship sex. If you are into money, if that's your goal, you, you basically worship money. You worship mammon is what Jesus describes it as. If you're somebody that loves to be in control or you exercise constant oppression upon other people, you worship strength and power. And what I'm trying to say is this, is that all of us are worshipers. But most of us don't worship that which is worthy. 
what John describes before the throne are those that worship him who alone embodies worthiness. And that these who are before the throne, they respond to the greatness of God by actually taking these crowns off of their head. Crown always represents something of authority or greatness. And to be really frank with you, I think probably what it means, even though it doesn't say it explicitly, I think it's sort of implicit, that this idea of crowns speaks of something that all of us are given authority. All of us are given ability. You know that? Every one of us in this room, we all have a jurisdiction of authority in which we govern. Every one of us. If you're a dad, kids are under your jurisdiction. If you're a student, that's all you got, you got schoolwork under your jurisdiction. You, you, got, you got to do it well. All right? If you end up, you know, owning a business, you got employees that are under your jurisdiction. If you're married, you got your wife. If, if you're a woman, you've got kids, you got your kids under your jurisdiction. Every single one of us has a sphere of authority which has been gifted to us by God. Every one of us. And the reality is, is some of us recognize where that authority comes from. It comes from Him who has all authority. And the reason why we have authority is because him who has authority, all authority, has allowed me or you to have some level of authority. And some of us exercise that authority, like those in the book of Revelation, we will take our crowns off before, on our head and we will lay them down before God, who is all authority, and we will worship him. Others of us use that authority, we abuse people, we take advantage of those that are hurting, marginalized, oppressed. We take advantage of our kids. You know, guys, if you're married, I hear guys talk about this sometimes and try to use scriptures and be like, the job of the woman is just to submit to the woman. You are an abuser. You are abusing the scripture to somehow, you know, broaden your jurisdiction. If you really want to understand what authority is like or godly authority, you not only need to understand that it is about exercising authority, but it is also periodically also about you laying aside the glory, getting off of your throne like God through Jesus, entering into our world and submitting himself sometimes to being vulnerable to the point of death, becoming a servant. That's what a true worshiper of God is all about. So if you're a man, and one of these days, if you're going to get married, if you are married, please, please, please understand, if you are going to look like God, you have to understand not only the supremacy of the authority of God, but you also need to understand what it looks like to lay aside that and be a humble servant. Does that make sense? These guys in heaven know what it means because they have learned the facts, the reality is, is that God is all supreme. God is on the throne. And we humbly take our crowns off. And we lay them before God who is worthy. And we worship him. They sing in heaven. Heaven is really in a lot of ways about, there's a lot of song. Not only are there colors, but there's song. They sing songs. Throughout the book of Revelation, you're going to find at least, I think, around 16 times, songs that are being sung to God. That's amazing to me. All throughout the book of Revelation, there are these songs that are being sung to God. I think throughout heaven, throughout the times in which we will be with God, Jesus will be the source of inspiration of new songs being sung to God. I envision heaven being a place where new songs, new melodies, new hymns will be written to God, about God, about his mercies, about his greatness. It won't just end once we get there. We just sing the same one over and over and over again. Like some endless 80s hell. It will be beautiful. 
I mean, it'll be absolutely amazing because Jesus will be the source of it all. This is why heaven is amazing. We sing because singing comes from heaven. We love beauty because beauty comes from heaven. We care about lighting because God cares about lighting and pictures and images and glory. This is one of the reasons why we are sort of in this reclamation opportunity right now in this building. It's one of the reasons why we do not have fluorescent lights on. We hate fluorescent lights. We believe that they will be banished from the eternal city and they will be sent down to the lake of fire and they will be given all the fluorescent lights. We care about beauty. We care about things that represent glory and colors and are full of life and richness because God does. Does that make sense? Heaven is glorious because God is glorious. Heaven is beautiful because God is beautiful. We care about beauty because we're made in the image of God. And if you understand who you are and you understand your place, you understand that God is not some despot, some evil ruler, some dictator out to just destroy people. God is a benevolent, loving father slash authority over all things. And he seeks to make things right. And there will be a host in heaven that will recognize this. And they will humbly, gladly, joyfully take all the authority that they've ever been given. All the talents that have ever been placed or deposited in their hands. And they will gladly and humbly lay that down before God. And they will worship the king forever. We're going to have an opportunity right now to worship God. To respond to him. I hope you know him. I hope you know the greatness of God. I hope you realize that one day you will be there. I believe it's because of this, what you just saw in chapter four, that Paul was able to say something like this in his life that was filled with all sorts of hardships. It seemed like everywhere Paul went, he was either getting beat up or kicked out of a city or something else was happening or some sort of riot was breaking out. Paul summarized his life. He said this, I've come to realize that the suffering that I endure in this life is not worthy to be compared the glory that will one day be revealed. What I hope you see is this, that God is glorious, he's beautiful, and you will be there if you trust his son. You will be there, you will see this, you will worship God, you will cast your crowns down, you will confess and proclaim and sing joyfully praises to the greatness of God because he's a good God. We're gonna respond, we're gonna sing, we're gonna have an opportunity to praise him, I would encourage you as we sing, sing out to God because he's worthy. Uh, The reality is for us as a church, I want for us to have freedom to feel the sense that we can just worship God. I was talking to a guy a while back and he was just talking about, you know, know, we we, we try to like control everything within church, like to control people. Like, you know, we don't want people to stand up and they should be sitting down. To be really frank with you, I just think that's silly. Heaven is going to be filled with people that are moved by God. So be really honest with you, if you love Jesus, if you're motivated out of love for Jesus, I don't care what you do. Stand up, sit down, get on your knees, move chairs around, get on your face before God, partake of communion, just fall flat on your face, prostrate, love Jesus, love him. If you love Jesus and you're doing it for Jesus, I don't care. Do it, because that's the type of worship that we should be doing. This is for Jesus. We love Jesus, and we are quick to want to express praise and love to God because he's a great God. And forever in eternity, we will be doing this. Why not start now? Why not enjoy him now? 
So we'll respond by giving our tithes and our offerings. We have the donation boxes in the back that's for you to give joyfully. We also have the communion. So I would encourage you, if you want to partake of communion tonight, eat the bread, drink the cup, and remember that the reason why there's a door opened in heaven is because Jesus first opened it, came into our world, died for us, went back, and left it open for us to come. That's why. That's why. We have an amazing Savior who loves us. Partake of the communion. Remember what Jesus did for you. Be in awe of him. Be quick to cast your crowns before him. If you don't know Jesus, encourage you. Just trust him. Confess your sins to him. Call upon his name. The Bible says, and he'll save you. I'm going to pray. Let's worship. Let's give to him our crowns, our worship, our praise, our tithes, our offerings, and remember him in the communion. Jesus, thank you for your grace. We recognize you. We worship you. We just now, Father, humble ourselves before you and just say that you're the great king. We love you. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard that which is, you just can't even begin to comprehend the beauty that will one day be revealed to us. These are just snapshots. But what we see, God, blows our mind. Thank you.